Greetings, SC land. This is Twig. Anthony Twig Wheeler here with another episode of Twig's SE Reflections podcast. This is an audio archive created specifically for somatic experiencing students and practitioners everywhere and other helping professionals who are incorporating the psychobiology, literature, somatic healing arts, new traumatology in their helping professional work. Hello there, folks. My name is Twig, and I am excited to be here with episode 104 in the audio archives found at sereflections.com, a website created specifically for SE practitioners by an SE practitioner for other SE practitioners. Hello there. Long time, no chat. Not here on the podcast, at least, as long-term listeners will know. Publishing diminished almost to one a year now since episode 100, and I come to the microphone today, April 1st, 2020, in a time that we all know is challenged. I'm going to talk about COVID-19 times, the novel coronavirus, its influence as a pandemic on us as practitioners and our work with our clients in this episode. That'll be our focus. On the way there, let's do a little orientation. There is a lot of helpfulness happening in the world. A lot of challenge. Let's say that. We know that. And let's say it. A lot of challenge. And then a lot of helpfulness. You don't have to look far. Just past your inbox. And you get... On an hourly basis, somebody else you know, somebody else you signed up on their newsletter, someone else who you haven't heard from for a long time, someone else you talk to every week sends you another thing that's meant to help in these times, which is awesome. It reminds me that the world is full of helpfulness and good ideas about how to take care of ourselves and one another and respond to the challenges and experiences that we have in our lives as well as teach us things and give us distraction and make us laugh and all of the rest. I like that. It's not just ugly, scary, witless. It's also enlivening and helpful and full of um, kindness and outreach. I'm one of them. I have been doing some outreach in various different circles that I move in the world in, very close to home, a little further out on the radio, a little further out on the internet, and also with the SE world. In that way, I'll say, in case you don't know, I have another offer of helpfulness that you can take advantage of if you like. 
at sereflections.com on the homepage or on the offerings page, you'll find a link to a project titled SEPs in the Time of COVID-19. And there's a simple little sign up there that'll give you a subscription or access to a collection of materials that I've been creating for SE practitioners around these times. I'm not trying to answer every question that a person might have as a practitioner around these times, but I have been meeting with people before this started. We turned those meetings. Those are from my guide to the SE language program. We were meeting on a regular basis, and then those moved into communications with SE clients around COVID-19 and the novel coronavirus. And then that turned into what is the primary offering that I have here to say that on Wednesdays, we've been getting together and doing kind of like structured uh, group pendulation and collective chill out sessions where we can take a breath together as SE practitioners. And that's been happening on Wednesday at 11 a.m. on the Pacific time. And that, yes, as you know, you can imagine, you know what's coming. It happens on Zoom. And you're welcome. As an SE student or practitioner or one of our kin, you are certainly welcome. You just go to sereflections.com and sign up for that program. You can find out all the information about it. It's free. Yes. And um, there are other resources in there including our sponsor for today's podcast, Special Edition Podcast 104 on COVID-19 and the SE practitioner that you are. Um, our sponsor today, riverminutes.com. Just go to riverminutes.com and take a minute by the river. That'll feel good. So let's get into a few contract things around this episode. One, leaning back on a long-term contract with the SE Reflections podcast, not going to be exhaustive. I, it wouldn't make any sense to try to be exhaustive about this subject tonight, today, April 1st. I'll probably get caught in a few pieces, and then it, it won't even be quasi-complete Second piece of the contract tonight, today. I used to spend hours, days working on notes for each episode. Sometimes hours, just hours, and I'd lay them all out and I'd never read them while I was doing it. Really, per se, uh, just not how I was trained up. Um, but I'd do all the preparatory work so I could know how much of the terrain and how exhaustive I was going to try to be. And uh, I don't have anything like that kind of time right now, nor would I have the mental capacity to do it. So I have been taking notes as I've been doing consultations uh, with various different SEPs, and as I've been doing my own sessions, and as I've been going through my own experience, and as I've been talking to friends and colleagues, and as I've been cogitating on a central theme for me that was described in SE Reflections podcast episode X, 
which you'll find somewhere around 100, and uh, the title of that being on existential threats and uh, keeping your clients from freaking out when everything is at stake. And in that episode, I kind of went over some of the thinking that I have, and I think that SE shares with us on things that we can do, things that can be done when the threat, as it were, isn't, uh, quote, an inescapable attack. It's not quite as discreet as a thing that happens, such as a fall or a car accident, more that the experience of being alive is the fear that that'll end, that your existence will be taken out, and how the world at this point in history gives us plenty of ways to be aware of that happening, not just on an individual level, which is hard enough, but to be aware that it is happening uh, for others and for potentially great numbers of people all at once or in combination with one another. Not easy stuff. Not easy stuff at all. We're in something like a time like that. It's definitely a time that brings up existential threats. And this episode needs to touch a little bit on that. What it doesn't get to do, though, is have all that laid out really super well. So here we are. We're going to do what we can. We're going to see what happens next. I think we should name some of the basics. By now, you are fully aware that this pandemic requires everybody's response and that not everybody is going to respond the same way, nor could everybody. Not everybody's in the same station, as they could say, the same socioeconomic availability and access. It's tremendous conflict in the world in general, uh, always, and um, grates on some of us in a big way. And an event like this brings all that to the fore. And the responses will vary. Capacities for response will vary. Access to response will vary. And yet, the situation is essentially one of a threatening environment, in some way universally so. It's not that everybody is in the same sense of threat. It's not that everybody is actually threatened in the same way. But the notion of a pandemic is that around the world, pan, the earth, earth-wide, any of us could get sick from a novel, quote, novel, never experienced by us before, or any of our ancestors, pathogen, never experienced by any of our ancestors that we're aware of, that have lived to tell the tale, um, probably never experienced at all. A pathogen that 
in another animal somewhere out there on this earth, on this good green earth, there is an animal that that virus, uh, a kind of reproductive information packet, a virus, not exactly, quote, alive, but given living tissue that it can inform with its information, its RNA code, will make that other living tissue, if it's appropriately matched somehow, uh, will turn that living tissue into a reproduction process for reproducing the virus, the information in the virus. Um, it's a simple part of evolution that you and I in some way are complicated expansions of over a very long period of time and different organisms on the planet having evolved out of very simple things have been kind of like reproducing their genetic information that's what we do we reproduce ourselves and our children and we pass on our genetic information and some things eat us as we go along and we eat other things as we go along and some things coexist with us and somewhere out on the planet there's some critter out there and it's a bat or it's a pangolin or it's some kind of critter out there that has this quote virus that it lives with and it doesn't cause any kind of problem at all it wouldn't be called a pathogen per se it would just be part of the ecosystem of that creature. And we've never been in contact with that particular kind of part of that creature's ecosystem. It just so happens that our lungs and our lung tissue, our respiratory tract, is a place where if that particular structure of stuff, we'll call it a virus, with genetic information inside, gets an opportunity to be inside of one of our lungs, it's likely going to get the opportunity to reproduce. And it's, it's going to do that at the cost of us, of our body, um, and the tissue that our bodies would be making on our behalf. And if enough of that happens, okay, so one more piece. Because we've never been in contact with this thing, this particular molecule, group of molecules, this virus, our bodies don't recognize it as something that will do us harm when it enters. Now, we've all been sick before, and we've all, we've all been like sick in the sense of like, oh, I've got something growing inside of me that's 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 trying to do me harm and our bodies have each time that's happened uh, if we're still alive and um, even if we were given medicine as a process our bodies have as an aid in the process of recovery from that illness from the growth of that bacteria or virus a couple other options too um, parasites and such. In, in the process of responding, our bodies have worked out, oh, that's the shape 
of something that will do me bad. That's the size of something that will do me bad. That's the, um, the smell. That's the signature, as it were. And as soon as after we've been ill, we get what are called antibodies to that virus, to that bug, to that pathogen, to that bacteria, when our bodies see it again, they'll ramp up our immune system and reproduce a whole bunch of antibodies to go out and find all of those little things that would do our body harm. And the problem, of course, is sometimes when we encounter some of these bugs that we don't know yet, our bodies have a hard time catching up with the news that there's something going on inside of us that'll do us harm and not having the previous exposure, the experience with that pathogen, the pathogen can grow, can reproduce, can put us into a challenged state and our immune system We'll both have to try to figure out what the heck is going on. We'll have to keep us going besides the point, and we'll have to figure out how to take out this pathogen and figure out its shape and all of the, the you know, call it what you will. But it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And our bodies, they're keen on doing such a thing. If the infection isn't so bad, if our immune system is in somehow relative shape to it and can figure things out fast enough and respond robustly enough, um, fortunately, a good, 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 good number, the larger, the large number of people who would receive this particular pathogen, the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, this one that causes the disease, COVID-19, the result of having the novel coronavirus in our body is that our body goes into a predictable group of symptoms, maybe complex or variable, but nevertheless, there's a limited number of them, and we call that disease COVID-19 now. And our bodies as a group have never encountered this one before. And not having any kind of previous exposure to it it's damage to us, particularly for some, particularly for those with extra challenges. It can grow faster than our immune system can figure out what to do. And because, amongst other reasons, it takes place in our lungs and in its reproduction, it's reproducing itself, and it doesn't care much about what is going on for us. It doesn't care about anything. It's not something that cares. It's not a it's not the same thing as you or I. It's a similar kind of idea in the sense of reproduction and such, but the relationship is very, very, very distant. You and I, these volitional creatures, with all kinds of desires of what we were going to do this spring, the coronavirus had nothing to do with that. It was living in some creature out somewhere, just doing its little reproduction thing, just enough to keep itself going inside of its reservoir host, as they would call it, where it lives in, in perpetuity, perhaps for millions of years in the past, 
all the way until today where it it spills over as the epidemiologists would say it spills over and enters into a new host us which happens to be a place where it gets to grow super fast and where our bodies not having any kind of relationship to it yet don't necessarily respond fast enough in order to keep ourselves out of harm's way and it could it could happen in so many different kinds of ways and it has over human history it has so many times the vast majority of things that we have experienced as illness from the chickenpox when we were kids and in the past when so many people died from smallpox and when people were intentionally killed on this continent with smallpox um who also didn't have immunity to their experience of it, never having come into contact with domesticated animals before, as Europeans had. These, these things are playing out in human history for a long time, where essentially parts of creatures or creatures of themselves that live inside of other creatures, viruses and bacteria and such like that, that aren't causing those other creatures in undoable harm come into relationship with us. This can happen for other animals too. And not always does the same thing that bothers us bother other creatures in the way that COVID-19 isn't happening for dogs. And they're saying that the novel coronavirus doesn't affect dogs but they do, it does affect humans. When this all kind of like interrelationship of species, particularly either domestic species or animals that humans just don't have a lot of interaction with, when that takes place, we end up with these spillover events. And we have one now in an extremely dense worldwide population with a remarkable degree of travel and intermingling in a context wherein the introduction of something that attaches in our lungs and reproduces itself without inhibition to the extent that it can, the extent that our bodies will give it space to do so and under no no assured explanation or rationale for who and why it would be easier or harder for one person's body to have it do less or more harm with certain trends meaningful trends kind of sad trends of like who is most easily affected. And yet at in some level, it, it could just be the opposite of a whole different group is affected. And it would be somehow just sad in the same different way. Because when all of that comes together, it means that anybody who is unfortunate enough 
to come into contact with this virus, they end up having to play out the relationship of all this coming to bear on their organism, including, again, their access to supports or lack thereof. We can only assume that awareness of that is perceived by the nervous system of conscious creatures like ourselves, that our lives are threatened. We can only assume that the sense of danger is at least at a neuroception level somehow elevating the stress response for most, if not all people who are consciously aware of these dynamics right now. That's a whole lot of people in the stress response all at once. Now, you and I, we know something about the stress response. I mean, we know a bunch of things. Basics, like the more stressed you get, the less you think. Now, definitely the less you think well, the more threatened you feel, the less oriented you will tend to become, and the more reactive the more that the sense of danger feels unresponsible to, like unrespondable to, like overwhelming to, the more out of your control it is, the more likely it is to elicit feeling states of disempowerment, freeze immobility, sense of failure, the notion of I can't, the more the stress response rages on for an extended period of time without reprieve, without some sense of modulation pendulation, rest and restoration, the longer the sympathetic system remains elevated without a parasympathetic oscillation, the longer the more shutdown-oriented branch of the parasympathetic system, the dorsal vagal branch, has time to shut down, to kind of conserve energy, conserve oxygenation, the longer the body systems are influenced by either the sympathetic system or the dorsal vagal system without a kind of fluctuation between doing and resting and digesting, the 
harder it is over time to get out of those fixity states, the more costly it is on our metabolic and physical health and well-being, the less our pro-social access, our access to pro-social behaviors, and the more uh, likely to ruminate on the sense of danger we become. Or we just undercouple and stop paying attention to it altogether, right? Now, that's not all the only thing that's going on, but that is going on on a wide, wide scale. And to the extent that any of us are either on the front lines of response or in direction of not being able to respond uh, in a more ideal and preferred way, um, all the way up to being able to step right out of it, but then feel all kinds of weird feelings. Um, I'm sure not everybody does, but I know that some do, of having access and privilege to be able to stay safe at home and such. I mean, it's just the scene is fraught in every different direction uh, as, as it lays out more challenging for some than others. And somehow, uh, wildly, wildly um, the way it is. Where were you two weeks ago? And who were you hanging out with? It's hard. It's hard to say. It's hard to know. And it's also hard to assume any kind of, I think that's one of the central themes and the basics here. It's nobody's fault and it's nobody's failure. It's an environment of danger that also calls for our response. I mean, it does call for our response. There are things that can be done. There's lots of things that can be done. There are lots of things that can be done on our behalf. And that's true for you and I as people inside of all of this. That's true for you and I as SE practitioners who are kind of signed up for supporting people through troubled times. And it's also true for our clients who you and I are um, entrusted to provide some amount of accompaniment as they go through troubled times. And so the rest of this podcast episode is going to leave the basics and the appreciation that this is a novel situation. And we're going to look at like, well, what should we do? What could we do? What would be helpful in these kind of situations or in a situation, in this one, in this one right now, right now and other ones, because try not to do this too often, but we'll step back into the truth. This is not an easy time. And this will not be the hardest time. 
So, what what would we want to do? Well, you know, if we go back into the archives of Twig's SE Reflections, we'd find the perfect therapeutic island episode. And I've been thinking, like, well, you know, if you could employ the perfect therapeutic island kind of thinking to this scene, one, as you'd recognize that not everybody gets to respond in the same way, not everybody has the same access, and not everybody has the same self-regulatory capacity. But on the perfect therapeutic island, it would all be relative anyway, because you'd be looking for the person's titration that they can do on their behalf so that you would be reinforcing the I can principle rather than helping to reinforce learned helplessness by asking people to do things that they can't do and therefore reinforcing failure, which is kind of a particularly important thought or um, kind of rationale when working with trauma and with people with extended traumatic histories that have more or less reinforced or been reinforced the experience that when they try to do things on their behalf, they get muddled all the way to become catastrophes. And in any case, often don't feel the sense of agency, mastery, and empowerment that comes from succeeding at the experience of moving around successfully on this planet without being overly put upon and or when being put upon feeling like you were able to execute your response successfully so that you felt empowered by having gone through a challenge as compared to put under by it. It would be relative because some people have been put upon more and some people have had more support as they were put upon, et cetera, et cetera. And on the perfect therapeutic island, we'd look inside of this and we'd say, well, Let's at least find the common de the like the positive deviancy elements that almost everybody can do. Let's try and reinforce those as much as possible. And then anybody who can quote enhance or do more on their behalf, let's make sure that what they're doing on their behalf is psychobiologically informed. It's, quote, reverse engineered from the experience of how would their organisms be responding to this if they did feel empowered, if their bodies were working well, if their self-protective responses weren't overwhelmed, if their sense of boundary making was in their access, if their range of tolerance was bigger and stronger and more fulfilled and able to handle the charge of their activation and be permissive in allowing their feeling states to move through and all that good jazz. We'd look for essentially what can this person do? How much can they be inside of their experience with this? How much can they relate to this? And we'd give them, to the extent that they needed more support because of some kind of limitation in those things, we'd give, we'd lend that support by degree 
so that we were essentially maximizing the request and the sense of empowerment in their response while also helping to protect them from the sense of failure by titrating the request. That's what we do. At least on Twig's perfect therapeutic island, I don't know what would be happening on yours, but like if you got on my, my place, I'd be like, well, okay, let's get to know each other a little bit. Let's find out how hard or how easy it is. Let's find out what you're going after. Let's see what's in the way. Okay, now that we got an idea about that, let's also appreciate the repetitious nature of fixity in your nervous system process and the way that your body is able to move and the way your body is able to feel and the kind of freedom and range of thought your brain is able to have, et cetera, et cetera, and your spirit is able to fly, et cetera. And then let's kind of give your day enough structure and enough loose and enough experimentation and enough enjoyment and enough joining on the hard stuff and everything that'll keep you involved in the process, that'll get you to the next place where you'll be willing to engage your body's very natural and very expected and very desirous patterns of transition, of transient blends, as Porges names the kind of, uh, Stephen Hoskinson had a nice name for it too, the harmonic blends of the subsystems of the autonomic nervous system that would ultimately be responsible for helping to maintain and uh, energize and restore various different aspects of your body experience that would give you uh, the better, the more access to your preferred self, your preferred responses, to your broader thinking, to your more oriented self, to your more at ease in the face of adversity, more resilient in the face of challenge, more capable of returning to settled or quiescence or even just getting your feet back on the ground when you got shooken off. We'd focus on finding how much of that can we do and how can we give you ever-increasing sense of success and access to that so that you can respond to this challenge or all other challenges that come your way in your most resilient capacity that you have available for you. Assuming that as you go through challenge and find success with it, you'll find it more possible you to be more capable of going through more challenge should it come to pass. And it's one of the central themes of trauma recovery, right, is that we talk about things that happened in the past and we're, quote, healing things from the past and such. But if we really let ourselves project what we're doing, 
we're helping people deal with the sense of the stress response and their sense of challenge as they encounter it in the future. And that can include a, a, a fret from the past that they encounter tomorrow and they're having a, a flashback that's leading to a panic attack or it's leading to the ability to let the sense of reaction to the flashback move through with less sense of reaction and response and threat to it to where as the flashback tomorrow comes up, on one hand, it repeats the same thing and it undoes me. On the other hand, I'm able to get through it without it being as challenging. And over time, find out that I can either not be as reactive or it doesn't bother me as much or I've been able to renegotiate the incomplete self-protective responses that were helping to drive it, et cetera, et cetera. The notion is that as we successfully go through challenge, we become more resilient to, yes, at least that, handle future challenges when they come. A world like now, right now, today, has more challenges to come. So we'd want to kind of try to maximize how well we're doing as soon as we can in the midst of that. And we'd want to try to stabilize whatever resources we have to bear right now already. If the whole thing is overwhelming, if we can't find any quality of like, okay, well, yeah, it's terrible. It is. And my goodness, I mean, good thing it's not the gray goo. Good thing it's not ice nine. I don't mean to make light of it, but good thing it's not the blob. Good thing it doesn't reach out to get us. Good thing it's not mustard gas flying through the air looking for us. Wouldn't it be looking for us, but it'd be wafting through the air. Good thing there are principles about it that we can know and understand. Like if I were to clean my closet or I were to go into my closet that I and nobody else had been in for the last six months, I could, oh, good extreme here for a moment. I could strip down and Lysol my whole frame and rub it all down with wipes, uh, real ones that said on them, kills 99.9% .9 of all known stuff and climbed into this closet, I would at least in there know that like, I'm not going to get it right now in there. I'm not going to get COVID-19 from being inside of this closet. Now, what would I do with that? What I sh and what should I do? On the perfect therapeutic island, what would we do? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask somebody on the perfect therapeutic island to find, find a space where you can like feel that at least in this moment, for a moment, even just while you're in this one little space, it's not very big, but it's just big enough. And it's not like, it's not like perfectly safe, but from the threat that you are most worried about, you can know that that's not going to happen in here. I wouldn't ask that person to go in there and then fret about when they had to leave. I mean, they're going to fret about when they have to leave, perhaps. It could happen. But I, I, I don't want to encourage, okay, well, go in there and turn on, turn on a bunch of speakers 
turn on a bunch of screens with images in your mind, in your internal hearing, on your screen, out of your boombox. Turn up the radio. Watch the television. Go in there and fret about all the things that you aren't responding to while you're inside of here. All the things that you're worried about when you're elsewhere. Oh, no, no, no. I want I wouldn't do that. Now, that might happen, and I might have to join with that. I might have to join with that, and I would. I'd join with it in myself. I'd join with it with any of you. I'd encourage you as a practitioner to join with your client to the extent that they need it. But what, what I really want, I'd want, I want, I'd want myself, I'd want you, I'd want our clients, I'd want everybody to be able to go into some kind of space where they know that at this moment they're not going to be threatened in the same kind of way. And I'd want them, I'd want you, I'd want me, I'd want us to know that we need some kind of not under threat message. And we need our bodies to experience it. We need to create time and space to give alternative signals to our neuroception that don't reinforce the same sense of danger. We're in an extended stressor of which, in a way, all of us are threatened. We all perceive the sense of danger, and our nervous systems are undoubtedly, whether we are consciously aware of them or not, responding and causing the stress response to kind of come up and make us make us something, something different than we would be if we were more at ease all the time, again, safe enough, again, safe enough at least not as threatened as this. Somehow, like even when, when life was threatening three weeks ago for some of us, because we were working on our money and our families and our lives and all of this was at play already. But it wasn't this. And the, the self of some time ago, when it wasn't this yet, had at least some access to some neuroception that said, I'm not under threat all the time. And if we're going to be, and we are, and our clients are, in an extended stressor, an existential threat kind of feeling state, with, in a way, limited things that we can do in our behalf in response, and one of the best things we could do on our behalf and in our response is to do things like stay away from each other and stay at home and take a huge hit on our desires and our plans and our expectations for what we were doing this year and our finances and our projections and our weddings and our divorces and so many things that we didn't expect to suddenly postpone. The 
the things, the trips, the work, the good times we were all efforting toward. And to have all of these things kind of be intentionally postponed because they're the better part of wisdom and they are the appropriate response and they all come along with not just bummer, although that's one of them, and they come for some with absolute, like, I'm undone by this. I don't get to go on my trip. Or I don't get to move out of this horrid relationship. It's wide and vast, and it matters, and it matters that it is constantly signaling danger, and that on the perfect therapeutic island, at least, we'd create some kind of space, some kind of condition that was a strong enough signal to say, look, I know all that is true. All of that worry and all that strife and all that despair, it's all, it's all real. And we're going to go through this. We want to go through this as best we can. We can't just stay tense the entire time. It's plenty tense enough. We're going to need to create intentional space and intentional periods of time and intentional qualities of attention that help to reinforce messages to our body, uh, to our bodies, each other as well, that it's not just danger. It's not just danger. I mean, in some place, it is. It is. Some folks, you know that. You know that. Some folks, they are really, really in it. And I don't want that to happen anywhere. I don't want that to happen around you. I don't want that to be happening for them. I don't want it to happen for me. But there is a truth that in a lot of places, it is just full-on, true, living danger. And for any of us that could go into some quality of like, this is my space where I know that I'm not going to get hurt inside of this space, we don't want to be living in the sense of that quality of danger. At least not all the time even at a low level, consistent over time, we don't want that accumulated stress. We want to make sure that we, and to any extent that we get to guide other people, that we are intentionally cultivating variation in our feeling states, that we are consciously promoting sense and experience of pendulation, that we are um, establishing context and conditions, like the allowance to let down, and not just, and I appreciate it, like, go ahead, sure, why not? Zoning out, fine, I'm open, and binge-watching television, no problem. I, you know, everybody gets their response as far as I'm concerned, and from a psychobiological perspective, any of those things could be incorporated into the body of, I am not as threatened right now 
I should let myself notice that as compared to I'm doing this in order to get away from the state and the experience of danger, but I'm not letting my body get the signal, the somatic signal, the felt sense signal, the recognition that in any one moment, I am not also always in danger. So this comes to every number of different signals that are inside of the instructions on how to protect ourselves right now. You have to wash your hands. It's part of the rules of this situation. We have to wash our hands. If we have any access to soap and water, we should be washing our hands. And all of the folks who don't have access to soap and water, like, yeah, that is terrible in this situation. And if we have access to soap and water, we need to wash our hands. And when we're washing our hands, oh, we could, we, you know, I have to do this and it's terrible. Okay, that's one, I get it. I, I have to do this because I'm afraid. Okay, I get that too. Yes, if that's necessary. Good, got to wash your hands. It's the basic part of it. But I'm doing this on my behalf so that I won't have to worry that when I touch my face just after I wash my hands, that I'm hurting myself in some way. Instead, I'm going to do this action on my behalf to wash my hands and wash my hands well and get my, under my fingernails and, and, and interlace the fingers and rub the tops and all around. And it's going to be 20 seconds at the least. I'm going to give my hands a massage. And at the same time, I'm going to get some sense and I'm going to advocate for some sense that I don't just do this because I'm afraid of the consequences of not doing it. I do this because after I've done it, I can have a moment or longer of appreciating that at these moments, my hands are not a threat. I can touch myself. I can rub my face all over my face. I can, I can wash my hands really well. I can wash my face really well. And then I can massage my face. I can rub my eyes. I can relax my eyes with my hands over my eyes. I can, I can wiggle my ears. I can put my fingers up my nose. I can put my fingers in my lips and blah, 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 blah. And you can too. Okay. Now here's the thing about differentiation with existential threats. If everything's a threat, if everything could take me out, if everything becomes like universally dangerous, uh, you know, my, my, in yours and our organism, we're naturally just going to withdraw. We're just going to pull in. We're just going to conserve energy. And everything that is in that signal of threat reinforces the sense that I, I can't move on my behalf. But anytime we can differentiate, no, I, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, there's so many terrible things in the world. There really are. And in anybody's individual life, so many terrible things. And without pendulation, all that's just going to compound on itself like a trauma vortex. It's just going to 
reiterate how we, we could wash our hands and we could get some of the sense of safety and value out of having washed our hands, doing something on our behalf and giving us a moment of a, a little moment of pleasure, a moment du delicia, as, as a, a very special person used to say in Brazil. Que moment du delicia. A little moment of deliciousness that we can rub our faces without worry. And in doing so, we can feel, give our moment, give our, our bodies a sense of like, well, look, I'm in the stress response all the time. I'm just listening to the news all the time. I've got to wash my hands all the time. I've got to watch after my family. I've got to take care of my food. I've got to wonder about my work. I've got to find out if I can, uh, my telehealth will work with Zoom. And okay, true. And wow, you know, we're, we're not going to put some modulation inside of that somewhere. We have to. We'd have to. And our clients need to. Now, it's completely understandable that anybody would be inside of this thing with us and they just try and like charge through to the end. And it's also perfectly understandable that lots of people would, as they come into it, feel so burdened and overwhelmed by it that they were just going to like try and check out until it was over. Now, one of the profound opportunities in a kind of psychobiologically informed trauma healing modality such as SE, and I think SE is just a really good fine example of this is that it says you know what people go through hard hard stuff animals on this planet go through hard scary stuff that almost takes them out it really does a lot of things do take us out and a lot of things do take other animals out but yet if we stay alive there is a very strong prospect, particularly now when we understand this in a way that we just haven't had access to for a long time, too, too long. But thanks to like Peter Levine, amongst, amongst other sources supporting this, but definitely thanks to Peter Levine, we can see that the nervous system has these very particular kinds of responses. And from the sense of giving agency and empowerment to an organism, the execution of the motor system and the, quote, completion of self-protective responses and the sense of um, responsivity to challenges that are taken on in a titrated enough way that we can find success with those challenges Our organisms are profoundly resilient to challenge and capable not just of enduring and long-suffering, but of um, remarkable capacity for being with extremely 
negative experiences. And either in the midst of them, responding as best we can, and after they've passed, recovering our sense of well-being, agency, and fulfillment as, as really kind of like part of what we're designed to do. To live life, have at times profound challenges, to survive those challenges when possible, and then to look for the opportunity to continue to have a profound and agreeable life. Being able to relate to the nervous system from a psychobiologically informed perspective greatly enhances the likelihood that we can go through challenges and find our sense of regulation, capacity, and settling after the fact compared to just being thrown by the dysregulation, accumulated stress, reiteration and reinforcement and reenactment of kind of fixated survival responses and a real curtailment and blocking of the vitality of our life energy. There just is no question we're in troubled times. There's also no question that we can do this. We can respond as best we can to this, and in so many ways, what is available to us in terms of response is vast. We, we have all kinds of opportunities to engage our well-being. Yes, it's in isolation. In so many ways, it's at a physical distance from one another, a self-protective mechanism that is. And they are using the phrase social distancing of course they don't run it by us. They don't say, well, would you prefer or suggest something else? We could say physical distance and we'll keep the social engagement going. We'll just keep it at a farther than six feet away physical distance from one another. But in solidarity, we'll keep in relationship and we'll maintain the self-separation in physical space from one another so that we're not likely to spittle toward one another unnecessarily. I mean, there's so many different ways to look at these things, and I'm no expert on them. I could definitely say this, though. We can do this both better than so many people will, and anybody that we have guidance and influence with, we can help encourage them to use this uh, for some as a full-on growth opportunity, for others as a, it's not going to be easy and we're going to try to get you through this and you're going to try and get yourself through this as best you can. And here are some things that we can do consciously, actively do 
for you and on your behalf and that you can do and invest in so that your body isn't getting a continuous sense of danger, but at least periodically and for darn good reasons, getting some signal of support, settling, rest and restoration, letting down from the sense of tension, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many more things that we, or subsets of those things that we might investigate. And I won't go into them in this podcast. I will say that we've been exploring at least my take on several of those in that SEP in the time of COVID-19 project in the meetings we've been doing there. We've been recording those and those are available in that project. And they essentially come down to different either sympathetic prompts or parasympathetic prompts that um, in a appropriately titrated way are meant to try to evoke some quality of state change to help people get some access to their frustration or to experience the sense of settling or to give a visceral kind of uh, reminder that things are meant to move and pendulate. All of those are available again at sereflections.com for SE practitioners and students and uh, those, those that we walk along with. Okay, then, we're going to come to a close on this episode. I'm going to remind you here of our sponsor for today. It's uh, riverminutes.com, riverminutes.com. And uh, if you need a moment outside and haven't been able to get it, maybe step on over to your computer, your phone, your laptop, your kind of modern communication device and you look up riverminutes.com sponsor for today little minute by the river okay friends i am wishing you the very best out there there are so many folks offering so much help these days there's no shortage of good ideas available and I hope you'll avail yourself of the right amount of all of that uh, from myself as well. And the rest, maybe you'll let go for now or as time goes along, pick up and put down what you need. And even if you're in a fairly enclosed space, Uh, one, enjoy the feeling of feeling safer than you might elsewhere. And two, enjoy some of the experience of living. It really is worth it. We'll talk again, and I'll wish you well from here. Okay. Bye-bye for now. 